0: an episode of History Channel's reality show about a pawn shop. I read of one incident that occurred. A man brought a violin and uh, asked for an appraisal. In fact, I had one lady tell me after the first service that she'd done the same thing. Well, according to this man's story, he had recently purchased some property. On it was a, a house and an old barn. He, uh, after purchasing it, went and inspected in this barn, was looking around, went up in the hayloft and found a chest, an old chest, and opened it up. And inside, tucked in there, was a, a violin. It was carefully wrapped. He dusted it off, still in pristine condition. And he found the name Stradivarius on the inside. He assumed, he hoped, he hoped that that was legitimate and that the violin was the real deal, worth several million dollars, and uh, to his disappointment, and the lady similarly, found it to be hardly worth the price of a used violin. The trouble is there are so many fake instruments out there, and many of them signed by Antonio Stradivarius. In fact, it kind of tweaked my interest, and so I did a little research to see if there's anything more recent and found that just months ago a millionaire dealer was caught in one of the most far-reaching scams tied to the Stradivarius violin and cello that had ever been caught. He was uh, renowned as one of the world's foremost authorities on the value of these instruments, not just the Stradivarius but but others, and brokered many, many deals. He um, was trusted by institutions and uh, so many, in fact, around the world, he, he had offices in Chicago, New York, Seoul, Zurich, Vienna. He was, he was believed to be the final word on defining the value of violin or cello. Less than 24 months ago, he was caught, discovered to have been defrauding his clients by selling both genuine and imitation And nobody really knew which was which until he was finally caught. In fact, in one instance I read 30 instruments that he authenticated as valuable were sold to a major American philharmonic. They later proved to be just run-of-the-mill. In fact, it nearly bankrupted that orchestra. On another occasion, he sold a cello for $300,000 when it was discovered later to be worth around $2,000. I asked one of our celloists who came up earlier today, is that a $300,000 cello or a $2,000? She said, well, unfortunately, it's not a $300,000, but it still costs more than my car. So these are expensive, expensive pieces of equipment. Well, after decades of dealing, he was finally caught red-handed, but not until after he had built clients out of more than $100 million like he lived in a renovated castle in Austria and had become the toast of high society in the music industry, again, that believed him to be the final word, not only on the Stradivarius, but the value of that instrument, the violin and cello. You're ahead of me, I'm sure. Every hour has been today. You know where I'm going with this. There isn't any scheme more opulent... There isn't any scheme where more money changes hands with more potential clients to be deceived and defrauded annually than the schemes of Satan all in the name of God. Around the world today there are religious investors seeking, as it were, spiritual answers, and they are sold spiritual imitations, lookalikes, fakes, along with trainloads of empty promises, right? I mean, dealers in religion nearly blanket the globe, convincing prospective clients that the name on the label has not been forged. That's the genuine item. It really will connect you to God. It will take you to heaven. Jesus signed it. I guarantee you Jesus made that one. From the first century to the 21st century this problem has plagued the church so much so that the apostles all warn the church and John the apostle certainly among them of counterfeit ministers, counterfeit gospels, counterfeit doctrines, and even counterfeit Christians. And the average Christian is kind of left to wonder, maybe worry, how can I tell the difference in a world of spiritual limitations? Counterfeits. I'm not a theological expert. I never took that class, you know, um, Cults 101 or How to Spot a Deceiver 102 or, or whatever. I mean, how, how can I... What kind of equipment do I have as an ordinary believer to enable me to tell the genuine item from a forgery, a cheap... Knockoff and imitation. How can I avoid the imitation violin, so to speak, in the spiritual world? Well, if you go back to our letter from John, 1 John, in chapter 2, you catch it fairly clearly on here. In fact, one of the reasons the Apostle John was inspired by God to write this letter into existence was to deal with this subject. In fact, look down at the verse we left off with last Lord's Day at verse 26. Here's one of his purpose statements. He drops them in. Here's why I'm writing to you. Here's why I'm writing to you. Here's here's why I'm writing to you. Here's another one, verse 26. These things I have written to you. In other words, here's one of my purpose statements for this letter. Now notice, this has to do with regarding those who are trying to deceive you. I'm writing you this letter because there are people who are going to try to deceive you. That word deceive can be translated to seduce you. False leaders are effectively, false teachers are going to try and seduce you into being led astray, literally seducing you to wander around. Planeta is the Greek word, to wander around like some planet after them. Some of them seduce by means of charming personalities, some are scholarly and authoritative. You know, some have followers from Chicago to Tokyo to Seoul, Korea, to Vienna. Some are silver-tongued orators. Some possess powers of persuasion. None of them wear name tags as we've said, I'm an antichrist and I'm going to deceive you. Now John has already identified them that way, hadn't he? Look up at verse 18. These are antichrists. These ones who are against, Antichristos, against Christ, or instead of Christ. They want to take Christ out of the picture and give you something instead of Him. They've already, if you look at verse 19, you remember, they've already left the church. They've already left the church. Now, why won't they leave the church alone? You ever wondered that? I mean, they've left the church. Why don't they leave us alone? Because... This is where the list of potential clients exists. That's why. How many people have you met in some cult, some ism, some offbeat, out of the Bible or apart from the Bible view, and you get to talking with them, and where did they come from? They came from among us. So they're always fishing in this boat. They want at the flock, they want to influence the flock, they want to hurt the flock. That's one of Satan's agendas. I'll never forget several years ago, in fact, when we were down the street in the other building, a woman in our congregation, we told her that she couldn't return to worship until she repented and apologized to a number of people that she was in the process of slandering. And the division just kind of swirled at her feet, and every Sunday was sort of a new chapter in the drama. She refused to repent and make things right a couple weeks later, she showed up at the church lobby to get a directory, and I just happened to be walking by, and I saw her, and I overheard her request, and I said, no, you can't have one of those directories. That's when we used to print them. And I said, furthermore, you're not even supposed to be on this campus, and you can leave now immediately. Well, she insisted on staying and, 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 and demanding this um, this phone directory and and I said no again, and we just sort of had a little standoff, and finally she turned and she stomped out of the lobby, but not before turning back at me and delivering a few uh, select um, Greek and Hebrew words that I'd never heard before in church. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they weren't in the Bible either. But she wanted, she wanted access to that directory. She wanted access to the flock. By the way, that's one of the reasons for exercising discipline. It, it safeguards the flock from those who will divide, distort, and even deceive. In fact, the false teachers here that John is interested in in revealing to us are really doing even greater damage. They are selling gospel forgeries. They are selling lies. And the issues are far greater. In fact, heaven or hell can be determined by following the wrong Jesus. And although they've They've withdrawn from the assembly here in 1 John. They still want to retain the contacts, and that's why John has to warn the flock, as I, through him, would warn you. They want to be able to influence the faithful and lead the faithful astray. So John warns the body of the threat of, of spiritual deception and spiritual defection. How does the ordinary Christian handle this kind of threat? I mean, how do you spot it? How does the ordinary believer stand a chance in detecting clever, impressive, spiritual forgeries, especially when they, they might even come with these, you know, these affidavits and testimonials, these certificates of authenticity? Do you have anything in your home that has with it an affidavit of authenticity? One of my treasures is framed... It's outside of my office door. If you were to go upstairs near my office, right outside my door is a framed sheaf of paper about eight by ten inches, and on it is the writing in black ink. It's from the hand of Charles Spurgeon. It's one of the pages from one of his manuscripts. And I have it framed, and underneath I have framed the, the uh, Certificate of Authenticity. Now, what makes that page even more interesting and valuable that causes you kind of just to stand there and read it is uh, the fact that, according to his custom, after preaching that sermon, he would come into the office on Mondays and he would take that manuscript and he would take a pen using purple ink, that was his favorite color that reminded him, he said, of the royalty of Christ, and he would edit his manuscript. He would add little lines, he'd scratch out lines and, and, and so forth. And so there I have it on my sheet of paper framed I have several phrases where he's scratched through them and then written over in the margin his notes in clearly purple, still purple ink. You can see it if you like. I'm selling tickets outside in the lobby after this whole thing. Now, who knows? It could be a forgery. It could be a fake. I might have been staring at, you know, something somebody did 15 years ago. And listen, if it it isn't real... And, and you find out, after I've died, and you're packing up my stuff to get, get me out of here, and you find out that that is not the real thing, that'll be okay with me. It, in fact, I will not be in hell because I believed it was the real thing. But you get the gospel wrong. You follow in imitation Jesus. You don't get the real Jesus right. It's heaven or hell. Which is why the Apostle John is so passionate about providing the believer with, with what we could call forgery-detecting equipment. Notice verse 27. He writes, as for you, now he's writing to all the believers, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides... In you, you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing effectively teaches you about all things, it's true, it is true, it is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now this anointing we introduced in our last session together, it is not a good education, it's not a certificate of license hanging on some clergyman's wall it isn't some mystical power that you tap into if you just get the secret incantation down correctly. No, this, this is a, get ready, this is a person. It's a person. It is what we call the third person of the Godhead. Now John has already disclosed to us in verse 20 that every believer has been anointed by Christ with The Spirit. The Spirit is within all of you. You go over to the Gospel of John in John chapter uh, 16, and Jesus promises the indwelling Spirit who would teach the believer and guide the believer into truth. You mean I have within me an indwelling member of the Godhead? Absolutely. And you need to understand that that would be what John is writing here, what we, you know, okay, it's been 1,900 years, but they would go, wow, did you, did you read what I just read, that we've been anointed by the person of the Holy Spirit? He indwells us as they ransack the New Testament letters, as they're being written by the apostles, that the Spirit of God, that's stunning. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not indwell believers. The Spirit of God came upon priests or kings, and anointed them for some kind of extraordinary uh, ministry. It wasn't a permanent indwelling. It was a temporary overshadowing. That's why you read the Spirit of the Spirit coming upon some Old Testament character and then leaving them, like King Saul or or Samson. This is why David prayed what you will never have to pray. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You never have to pray that. He wanted the anointing so that he could be king as he ought to be king. But the idea that every believer is permanently anointed, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God was unthinkable. What one author referred to as an unbelievable extravagance of which no one is worthy. And so the disciples' heads have got to be spinning. And the early church, we've been indwelt permanently by an equipper, someone able to detect for us the lie. So let's just kind of back up here this morning and and put the pieces together and kind of discover this third-person member of the Godhead who is either overly emphasized or rather pathetically Underappreciated. The Holy Spirit. He just so happens to be, according to this letter and others that I'll point your attention to, the divine equipment. Better yet, the divine equipper for faith and life. Now, John has informed us here that every believer, and I emphasize that, every believer has been anointed by the Spirit, not just the really super spiritual you know, Christian, not just the believer who never you know, misses church or never loses his temper, no, 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 every believer that will seek to reform us after the image of Christ. So let's take, some, let, let's take some time to just revel in the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And hopefully, Lord willing, we'll walk out of here more committed to listening to and walking with not just God the Father and God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit. Now, for starters, keep in mind that each member of the Godhead is attributed certain functions. As you study the Bible, you'll discover they're working in perfect harmony, three persons of the Godhead some functions overlap. Some are shown to be more specific in their relationship to one member of the Godhead. For instance, you you read in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, and you go over to Colossians 1 and you discover it was Jesus who literally spoke. He is the Word that created all there is. So keep, keep that in mind. There are some functions specifically geared toward or accomplished by The different members of the Godhead were given several functions of the Holy Spirit that effectively enables us to to walk with and live for our triune God. I thought it was wonderful. Gary doesn't know what I'm preaching, but the song selected for today had to do with praising our triune God. In fact, we sang one hymn text that sang glory to the Holy Spirit. We're given several functions of the Spirit of God, and I can't give you all of them, Um, but let me give you four of them. Number one, the Holy Spirit equips us for every aspect of service. In fact, His his work is so comprehensive and and frankly ignored and not even seen, and, and He's all right with that, but I think we ought to pay attention when we can and when we notice. But you find Him in the New Testament referred to as the Spirit of truth. That is the Spirit that gives truth. John 14:17. He's referred to as the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10:29. He's he's called the spirit of life, Romans chapter 8 verse 2, the spirit of glory, 1 Peter 4:14. Four, Frankly, every aspect of the Christian's life and service intersects with truth and grace and life and glory. These are the genuine signatures, so to speak, of the Spirit of God on our heart and life. If it's the real item. We will find Him stamping His name upon that which is truth and grace and life and glory. Let me give you another one. The Holy Spirit not only equips us for service, He leads us into holy living Paul reminded the Corinthian believers that their bodies were literally the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Every believer is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But then Paul tells the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 5 18 to be filled with the Spirit. Well, how can you be filled with someone who already infills you or indwells you? Isn't that a contradiction? No, the word Paul uses for filling in Ephesians 5.18. Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit as a command. It's the word for controlled. You could translate it dominated. Be dominated. Be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. So to be be filled by the Spirit is to be led by the Spirit. Oh, by the way, since we're talking about someone in the Bible referred to as the Holy Spirit, Spirit, you can rest assured that if he's doing the leading in your lives, he will be leading you toward holy living, right? In fact, one of the marks of deceivers is hypocrisy. They say they represent God. They say they represent the Holy Spirit, but their lives are not holy. Jude, in his little letter, describes false teachers as those who follow after their own lusts. They live for earth, for what they wear, how they're bejeweled, what they drive, what they live in. Everything's about earth. And their message is effectively how you can get everything you want on earth. That's how you can help spot those liars. He says in Jude's letter, or Jude writes, they speak arrogantly, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Note this, they are worldly-minded, devoid of the Holy Spirit. They have Holy Spirit stamped on their literature. But it's, it's an imitation. It's fake. Because the true work of the Holy Spirit leads His redeemed into living, holy lives. So the Holy Spirit not only equips us for service and leads us into holy living. Let me give you another one. He provokes in us genuine worship. If you go back to verse 27 of 1 John We're told that the Spirit abides in us, that we don't need anybody to teach us. He'll teach us all things. Now don't get confused there. Keep in mind the context here is one of false teachers the Gnostics were coming along and saying, You really need us to teach you something so that you can come to know God through Jesus Christ. We've got the secret. We've got, you know, we, we've got the, the new thing. We've, we've got the incantation. And John is saying, No, you don't need any of that. The Spirit of God will teach you the truth related to the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying here that specifically the Spirit of God protects us from. False teaching that denies Jesus as the anointed, the Christos, the Messiah. In fact, go back up at verse 22. You remember this one. He says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The Christos, the anointed one. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. The one who denies the equal deity of Father and Son. And the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what John is rolling all up in that one phrase. In other words, here's how the Spirit of God will help you spot the counterfeit. You'll detect the deceiver by how he seeks to draw your heart away from Jesus as equally divine with the Father. He'll also seek to draw your heart away from worshiping God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You'll spot a counterfeit gospel that way, a counterfeit religion, a counterfeit preacher, a counterfeit author, a counterfeit teacher by the fact that they will talk about God, but they will not talk about his equally divine Son, the Lord Jesus. They will not lead you to worship Jesus. In his commentary, D. Edmund Hebert illustrated this by retelling an incident where Dr. Harry Ironside, who once pastored Moody Church, he pastored Moody Church back in the early 1900s. Ironside was in Los Angeles on one particular day and he came across a man preaching in the street, so he stopped to listen. And as he listened, he, he understood that this man was actually detailing a heretical view of Christ held by a well-known, prominent, and, and growing in popularity cult. As he stood there realizing that, he happened to look across the crowd, the small crowd there, and he noticed an older gentleman standing there and listening intently. And every once in a while, it seemed that he sort of smiled and nodded to himself. And Ironside said he was filled immediately with compassion for a man that was obviously being deceived by this false teacher. So he kind of made his way around the crowd while the preacher continued until eventually he was standing there next to him. After the preacher finished, he struck up a conversation with this older gentleman and found out that the older gentleman claimed to be a, a Christian. And so Ironside said, well, again, to identify the genuineness of that statement and label, he said, well, what would you think about what the man preached about, about Jesus? The older man responded, well, I don't know if I could clearly answer all his arguments. But I do know that as he was preaching, something inside of me was saying, That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. That would be the Holy Spirit. In his gospel account, the Apostle John tells us that the signature work of the Holy Spirit ultimately glorifies Jesus Christ and exalts Him as more than a mere teacher, a mere man, a mere prophet, but God the Son, the God-man, God incarnate. Jesus himself even said to his disciples that after he ascended, the Spirit of God would descend and glorify the Son. And that incorporates, of course, the words of Christ as well, that this would be exalted, this would be held as our authority. It is the words and works of Jesus Christ. It is the words of revelation through His prophets and then ultimately His apostles delivering the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the genuine, legitimate gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And and, and you have to be on the lookout, obviously, because so much of what's out there doesn't say necessarily, well, we don't believe that God exists. It's we believe God exists. Let us define Him for you. In fact, a few years ago, a bestseller basically deceived a lot of people. I think a lot of people were already deceived and they just sort of fell into it. can't imagine a Christian not picking up on it. In fact, I believe Christians would. But let me just give this to you and you spot the lie. It was entitled, Conversations with God. Okay, now right there, The little flag in your mind ought to be going ding, 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 okay? Maybe you buy something else at the Christian bookstore and not that one. But let's say you pick it up. He sold, by the way, three million of these. And in it, he claimed to have direct conversations with God. Okay, again, ding, 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 ding. In fact, you ought to just hide him under the bookshelf there in the bookstore so nobody else... No, never mind. Okay, at any rate. He's basically going to define a God who suits any religion, and he doesn't claim to be the Christian's God. So this is, this is really erudite. This is new. Listen as Walsh, the author, writes of one of his conversations with God. God speaks first. I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours. Walsh. But my truth about God comes from you. God. Who said so? Walsh. Others? God. What others? Walsh. Leaders? Ministers? Books? The Bible, for heaven's sake. God. Those are not authoritative sources. Walsh. They aren't? God. No. Walsh. Then what is? God. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Listen to your feelings. Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or you read in your books, forget them. Forget their words. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I would hope you'd never buy any of those because halfway through that conversation you're going, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie. The Holy Spirit will never have you say, listen to your feelings because they are more authoritative than this book. But do you spot the lie in your teacher or your preacher or the guy you listen to on television when what he says has really nothing to do with this? But he's given you what God told him, what he's discovered, what new secret he has, or what God said to him. Do you spot it then? You see, when Jesus is describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, in John's gospel over at chapter 16, he says that the Spirit is effectively going to exalt the Son, that word exalt, is the word that gives us our word doxology. It's the word doxa. It gives us our word doxology. Doxology means to think correctly. It means to vindicate. It means to say something of someone so they are thought well of. So what's the Holy Spirit doing? He is vindicating the Son. He's leading us to think highly of the Son, He's leading us to worship the Son. The false teacher discredits Christ. The Holy Spirit vindicates Christ. The false deceivers diminish the deity of Christ. The Holy Spirit will exalt the deity and glory of Christ. False religions will will rob worship away from Jesus Christ. True religion will promote the worship of Jesus Christ. And you'll know that it has the stamp The genuine mark of the Holy Spirit as Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone as the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life is the object of our faith and worship. There's one more ministry of the Holy Spirit I'll briefly address. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit serves as God's promise of heaven. God's promise of heaven. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that the Holy Spirit is God's earnest Payment given to them. Paul writes it this way. God also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. I love that phrase. He's given us the Spirit, and the Spirit is our pledge. The word pledge could be translated down payment. We could call it earnest money. It's a pledge and a promise and you've put something down that costs you but it really simply communicates there's more to come, right? So the Holy Spirit is a pledge and a promise from the Father and I like to think of it this way. I like to think of it as an engagement ring because it costs the giver something and it communicates a relationship and a commitment between both the giver and the recipient. Many of you guys can remember the day you proposed to your wife. If you can't remember, just nod along with me. Okay, <laughs> Play along. I, I was old-fashioned. I wanted the ring. I wanted the ring in my possession so that, that when she said yes, I could solder it on her finger, and, and, and no, so that I could give it to her. And, and uh, it, it did a number of things. It, this was my pledge... At my cost, that there was more coming, that there was a marriage ceremony ahead. And it also told the world, by the way, it gave a message to them as well. It meant she's no longer on the market. You know, all those creepy guys out there, she is no longer available, right? She's mine, reserved, even though we're not married yet. You know, she, she effectively has agreed to this proposal, and it also reminds her of, of that as well, that she's effectively mine, that we are pledged to each other. From the way I remember it, when she said yes and put the ring on, the clouds parted and the sun appeared and the angels sang the hallelujah chorus. Is that how you guys remember it? Do this right now. Very good, okay. Listen, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, like that ring, he's a pledge. He cost the bridegroom, didn't he? Everything. To give to us his betrothed, his beloved, as a promise that there's more coming, that there's a wedding, that there's a marriage supper of the Lamb that we're heading there. We're heading toward the eternal glory of face-to-face communion with Christ as His everlasting bride. The Holy Spirit is that token indwelling us, reminding us, by the way, that we're headed there. Do we really want to do that? Do we really want to go there? Do we really want to live like that? you got a wedding ahead of you. The Spirit of God internally reminds us as He exalts the glory of our betrothed to live in light of that coming glory. Now, in the meantime, John writes here that this Spirit, verse 27, teaches us all things. Literally, He translates for us what we need to confirm the truth of Jesus Christ, and specifically about Jesus Christ. We still need to study the Word. We still need teachers. They're God's gifts to the body. There's still discipline involved in learning the Scriptures. But John teaches us that the Spirit will teach us all things, that is, all things related to Christ. So he will translate to our hearts the truth about Christ. And as we encounter different things during our day, he'll translate the truth of Jesus Christ to our hearts to keep us on track. So it's very important who's doing the translating in our lives, isn't it? Ken Hughes, in his wonderful little commentary on this book and at this verse, told the story of why it's so important to make sure who your translator is. He wrote, Jorge Rodriguez was a Mexican bank robber who operated along the Texas border around the turn of the century. He was so successful that the Texas Rangers assigned an extra posse to try to stop him. Late one afternoon, one of the special rangers saw Jorge slipping across the river and he trailed him all the way to his village where he'd been hiding out. He watched as Jorge first mingled with the townspeople and then went over to his favorite cantina to relax. The ranger slipped in and around and into that cantina and managed to get the drop on Jorge. With a pistol now pointed at his head, he said, I know who you are, Jorge Rodriguez, and I have come to arrest you and to retrieve the money you've stolen from the banks in Texas. And unless you tell me where it is, I'm actually authorized to shoot you. I'll take you in dead or alive, and I'll shoot you here and now. Now, there's a problem. Jorge doesn't speak English. (laughs) And the Texas Ranger doesn't know any Spanish. So they're at this verbal impasse, and about that time, a villager had been standing nearby volunteered. He said to the ranger, I'm bilingual. Would you like me to act as a translator? And the ranger nodded, and the villager proceeded to put the words of the ranger's threat into terms Jorge could understand. Jorge knew he was caught. The ranger's gun with the trigger cocked was aimed and ready at his head. Jorge answered to the translator, please tell the ranger that I have not spent any of that money. Please tell him that if he will go to the town well in this village, face north Count down five stones at that well. He'll find a loose one, pull it out, and all the money is there in a sack behind the rock. Now, please tell him quickly so he'll spare my life. And the translator, with a very solemn expression on his face, turned to the ranger and, in perfect English, said, Jorge Rodriguez is a brave man. He says he is ready to die. (laughs) You better be careful who your translator is, right? We're told here that the translator of truth into our hearts and lives is none other than the Holy Spirit. He will not lie to God about us. In fact, one other ministry we didn't even talk about is that He takes our prayers that we can't even communicate and He, with groanings we can't understand, communicates with the Father. He won't lie about God to us either. So John ends that verse by saying, you notice this? You might get out your pencil. You abide... In him. Now he's not telling us to make some kind of effort. Now, after all we've learned, we really got to work hard to stay saved. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the verb here, to abide, is in the present tense and the indicative mode, meaning you do abide in him. You do. You might write that little word in there for the English translation to be be a little clearer. You do abide in him. So abide. In other words, don't ignore him. Make room for him, as it were, in your life. Don't forget him. Don't go through a day without talking to him. Depend on him. Begin the practice of saying, thank you, Spirit of God, for that. As you learn something from the word... Thank you, Spirit of God, for that. Make much of him. Listen to his word. Take note of promptings, of warnings, of encouragements that would agree with Scripture. Why? Because he is the divinely given equipment to help you detect, as it were, imitation violins that just look real. The signature is there. He is the one who internally helps us understand as it relates to Jesus Christ, counterfeit ministers, counterfeit doctrines, even counterfeit Christians, so that we glorify Christ as the divine Son, so that we worship Him as the living Lord, so that we anticipate Him, our our soon-coming beloved Bridegroom and our coming King. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the exaltation of your deity that we find here in this word studied today. And Spirit of God, we thank you for for your indwelling ministry that resonates in our hearts with what we see and hear. And we thank you for the truth. Perhaps, Spirit of God, you are so mysterious to us in so many ways that we easily ignore you and you do a thousand things throughout the day in us and through us that we never attribute to you. You give us discernment and protect us and we easily forget to thank you. You have a ministry within us that is all-inclusive even to the point of communicating on our behalf in the courtroom of our triune God. Thank you. Keep us close to your word. Keep our hearts receptive to your voice. Give us alertness and discerning for over these centuries There have been many imitations stamped with the signature of God. Some even to this day involve millions upon millions of people who have bought into a counterfeit that degrades you, our Lord Jesus. So do that work in our lives And help us to communicate to our world as well that we belong to somebody. And we're looking forward to a marriage supper and serving alongside our betrothed. There's a wonderful little chorus I thought we might sing. Some of you may know it. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. I'll feed you the words as we get to that little... Chorus. Spirit of the Living God, let's sing it. Spirit of the say this, Spirit of the living God, control my life today. Let's sing that. to our triune God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let that be our benediction. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.